fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. They say these are the four things that drive the human world that we live in. And today Jesus confronts our desire for fame. Fame. Whether we want to admit to it or not, we all feel the pull of fame on our soul. Fame is the longing to be known, to be recognized, to be somebody in someone else's eyes. People can measure their self-worth based on their level of fame. In social media, for example, which is uh, something that's been in the news lately, is this very thing, is the number of followers that a person has, the number of likes they receive, the number of times their posts are shared are used to measure their worth. People are shouting, look at me, as they make these posts in their social media. And if no one looks by liking their post, they are soul crushed. In the area of religious devotion, we can be driven by fame too. The motives behind what we're doing can be for attention and gaining the admiration and accolades of others rather than a pure and sincere desire to please our Heavenly Father. Living for the approval and admiration of other people is a very slippery slope, though. People are fickle. They quickly move on to the next shiny thing. They change their minds. They forget. They die. And there's always someone, always someone coming up behind you that is better, smarter, faster, stronger, more attractive. No one is ever at the top of the pile forever. Jesus tells us to live for the approval of our Heavenly Father, who never changes, never forgets, never dies. He provides a secure foundation for us to build our life on that can never be shaken. We are continuing to work our way through the extended teaching by Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, which has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount, which stretches from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. Last time we looked at verses 21 through 48 of Matthew 5, where Jesus compares six moral teachings from the Old Testament and how they were commonly applied in the lives of people in that day versus the way he intends his followers to understand and apply those teachings. He began each comparison with the words, you have heard that it was said, and then he would describe this way that was typically uh, carried out these teachings, and then he would provide the alternate intention that he gives. And he showed how following the letter of these commands could miss the heart of what the commandments were intended to do. Today we're going to look at the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus turns from talking about how the commandments of God were being misunderstood to confronting the hypocrisy often displayed in religious observances. In that time and culture, three of the essential things practiced by a person who was truly devoted to God and seeking to live a demonstratively holy life were giving to the poor or what they called almsgiving. We don't use that word very much uh, in our day, but almsgiving or giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. Obviously, there were other 
things a truly devoted person also did, but these three were considered to be among the essentials that a person would do. Jesus confronts the hypocritical way that these three things were being practiced by people who were considered the leaders in religious devotion. The basic idea Jesus teaches is that correct actions with bad motives doesn't please God. We don't get points with God for doing the right thing if our motive for doing that thing is wrong. The intent of our heart matters. Jesus stresses the importance of doing good and right things when no one but God will know that we have done them, rather than doing good and right things when others will see, hoping to get their admiration and praise. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. This verse really states the main principle being taught in this passage from verses 2 through verse 18. The person who is doing good and right things to gain admiration and praise from others has received all of the reward that they can expect to receive. God is not pleased with that kind of behavior. Jesus encourages us to do good and right things when no one but God will see. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you, he says in Matthew 6, 4. Jesus teaches this same thing again in verse 6 and again in verse 18. When Jesus says something three times... In a row like this, we definitely need to be paying attention to what he's saying, right? Well, the first example that he gives is in verses 2 through 4. He says, So when you give to the needy, almsgiving, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here's the first example that Jesus gives. And there were no government assistance programs for the needy like we have in our country. So giving for the care of the poor was an important need in ancient Jewish society. It was easy, though, for the purpose of almsgiving to be twisted to become a way for the giver, the donator, to gain notoriety for their generosity. Announcing one's giving with trumpets was not necessarily something that people literally did, but the point being made is obvious, isn't it? Using a more modern-day expression, we might say something like, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with a big splashy post on all of your social media accounts. Jesus tells us to do our good deeds in secret, whether it's giving to the poor or something else. The Greek word that is translated as secret is kryptos. It means secret, hidden, private, concealed, Jesus says to give in such a way that our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing. Well, that's obviously not to be taken literally, since it would be impossible for me to keep my left hand from knowing what my right hand is doing, since they share one brain. Further, 
neither my left hand nor my right hand is capable of independent thought. So they really know nothing about anything. The idea is to do our good deeds for an audience of one, as they say, for our Heavenly Father, with no intention of having anyone else see or acknowledge those good deeds. Now, in actual practice, it's not always possible to do our good deeds in literal secrecy. We might be working with others in a team. We might be doing something where we have an administrative or a leadership role. There are lots of situations where we cannot always keep our identity hidden. Hopefully, though, you're understanding the point that Jesus is making here. If we are doing our good deeds to get accolades from others in some way, then we need to do a check on our motives. I want to talk about uh, a contradiction to what Jesus is teaching here that uh, we can see in the church at times. It always confounds me when I see acknowledgement plaques, for example, put on things at churches that give the name of the person who made the donation for that thing. It might be for the donation of land for the church to be built on or for a significant portion of the building cost or maybe for a new piano or pews or park benches or whatever. I've been in churches where every pew in the church has an acknowledgement plaque on it that says who donated that pew. For me, these kinds of things are obvious contradictions of what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. Now, there are lots of similar kinds of things that are commonly done in the world outside of the church. Donors, for example, make donations of money to obtain an acknowledgement, which becomes really a form of advertisement for their business, for example. People and businesses are often listed as sponsors for things. The Golden One Credit Union, for example, they paid a lot of money for that downtown arena to be named the Golden One Center. That's how things are done in the world outside of the church. I have no issue with that kind of thing in that context, but I don't think that kind of stuff should be taking place in the church. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here, too. Now, the second example that Jesus gives is prayer. And this section on prayer is larger than the sections on giving and fasting. Uh, It includes a sample prayer in verses 9 through 13 and an elaboration that he gives us on forgiving in verses 14 and 15. But verses 5 through 8 are very similar to verses 2 through 4. It parallels it very much, and the same principles are being taught. He says, and when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words." Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The problem is not with public prayer generally, but with the motive behind our praying. 
It can be a very encouraging and strengthening thing to pray with others out loud. Some of the prayers that I have been privileged to hear others pray have been tremendous benefits to my own soul. Jesus is not criticizing that kind of public praying. But I'm sure many of us have had to suffer through the long-winded, attention-giving prayer of someone who gets the vibrato, shaking, booming voice going, and the drawn-out, God! And then the string of adjectives that can go on for five minutes. It's easy to imagine this person watching and admiring their self as they lay this beautiful poetry out to everybody else. Our praying with others should be genuine and truly directed to the Lord. We shouldn't be trying to impress or score points with those listening. We shouldn't be trying to draw attention to ourselves in our praying. We should not be trying to make a point with those listening. Our praying should be praying to the Lord and nothing more than that. Jesus tells us here to find a private place to pray where no one else can see us or hear us other than God. Jesus himself is seen going to solitary places to pray. God doesn't bless and answer prayers based on how fancy they are, how well worded they are, how well organized they are. He's listening to our heart. And then in verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells us to not babble like an unbeliever, treating prayer like it is some kind of magic incantation or some meditative mantra. God is not an impersonal life force that we are trying to tap into or channel through prayer and meditation. In prayer, we are talking to a person, our Heavenly Father. He knows us so well, Jesus says, that He knows what we need before we ask Him. And to then help drive home the idea that the one that we are praying to is a person, actually the most person, person in existence. Jesus gives us an example prayer in these next verses. In verses 9 through 13. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer is sometimes called Our Father, the Our Father prayer. Jesus gives it to us as an example to help us with our own prayers. In this prayer, we are able to see the kind of relationship that we're to have with our Heavenly Father. And in this prayer, Jesus, he demystifies prayer for us, showing us what prayer looks like. There's a similar version of this prayer found in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 11, 2 through 4. It's a little bit different from this one but it's very similar. Jesus, he probably taught on prayer many times during his ministry. Luke and Matthew recorded these prayers from teachings 
that they had recollected or they had uh, heard from others who recollected these events. Uh, we don't need to get hung up on one being slightly different than the other. Uh, these Gospels are not carbon copies of each other. If they were, we'd only need one of them. We don't need four then, see. But we have four different expressions, records of the life of Jesus seen through the eyes of four different people. Everybody's got a little different take when they're telling their story of what they've seen. And we get the same thing in the Gospels as well. Let's take a look at this, this prayer for a moment. It begins with the words, Our Father. Our Father. The first thing we want to take note of is how Jesus tells us to address God in our prayer. He tells us to see God as our Father. Jesus actually uses the Aramaic term Abba, which is then translated into the Greek as Pater. This is a personal, intimate way of referring to our Father. Now, in our language and culture, the term Father is more of a formal way of referring to our Father, a more personal, intimate terms that we often use to refer to our Father is Daddy, Dad, Papa, depending on the culture, the background, uh, the family traditions that you grow up with. So although Father is technically a correct translation into English, it adds an air of formality that Jesus didn't intend knowing that it changes the flavor of this prayer substantially, doesn't it? Instead of saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which sounds formal and removed, it's more like, Dad in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're to approach God as our loving, caring, safe Father, our dad, our daddy. Now it says, our father in heaven. And this balances that intimacy that we are to have with the deep reverence that we are also to keep in mind when we pray. I mean, we may be talking to our heavenly daddy, but let us never forget that we are also talking to the grand creator of all things, infinitely powerful, knowing all things, possessing authority over everything in existence. We don't want to come to him with, yo, dad, what up, type talk. We remember that we owe him our deepest respect and devotion. It says, hallowed be your name. In other words, may your name be regarded as holy and may it be highly exalted and respected above all things. This is an act of worship and adoration directed at God, our Father. If we were to use more common, familiar language in this opening of the prayer, it might sound something like this. Dad, you are over all things. You're awesome. You are the best. I deeply respect you above all others. I appreciate you. I hold you in the highest place of honor. You are my hero. It is my hope and desire that everyone will feel the same way about you because you deserve it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
In other words, may your rule and authority be established over all, in all spheres, whether heaven or earth, the physical or the spiritual, and specifically and personally, may your rule be established in my life. It's a prayer of submission to God's authority over my life. Now, submission is not a popular idea in our culture, is it? But there can be tremendous freedom and peace in submission. To put our life under the authority of one who loves us, who cares for us in a perfect way, and who knows everything there is to know about everything, why would we not want to submit ourselves to that kind of authority? That kind of authority can bring peace and security and rest and joy. We pray, Dad, I want your kingdom to come and be established in my life and in this world. Now, some people, they, they can get kind of militant about the your kingdom come part of this prayer. They, they want God to come and take over the world with tremendous power and crush all the enemies of God in a mighty blow. But God has not chosen to bring his kingdom like that, has he? Instead, he chose to enter our world gently as a baby, vulnerable and dependent. When his enemies attacked him, rather than striking back, he turned the other cheek. He allowed them to beat him and spit on him and ridicule him and torture him and finally to kill him. God's kingdom is coming and being established one heart at a time, one life at a time. And it's a very powerful thing to watch how God transforms a life, rebuilding it from the inside out. There's going to be a final day when the kingdom comes in power, and we pray for that day. But we pray, too, for his kingdom to come now in every life, beginning with our own. Give us today our daily bread. In the first half of this prayer, the focus is on God as we adore and worship and submit to his will. And now in this second half of the prayer, personal petition is made. This here is a request for our Father to provide for our needs. It's an acknowledgement that God, our Father, our Dad, is our provider. This is not a nuisance to him, a bother, an onerous chore him to have to provide for us. He, he loves taking care of us. He, he loves being our provider. He loves having us invite him into our life to take care of us. And forgive us our debts. Now debts is a word that was commonly used to refer to sins. And that's how the word is being used here. In Luke's version of the prayer, the word sins is actually used rather than the word debts. This is a reference or, I mean, this is a request for the Lord to forgive us for our sins in order to maintain good fellowship with him. This doesn't teach that we must be forgiven again and again in order to maintain our salvation. It doesn't teach that. Our salvation has been obtained through the work of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins once and for all. If you have received Jesus Christ as Messiah through faith, then you have a relationship with God as your Father but just like in any relationship, if one person has wronged the other in some way, the person seeks reconciliation by acknowledging what they have done, confessing and seeking forgiveness. 
This is not because the relationship has ended because of the sin. Rather, because we are in a relationship with God as our Father, we want all the more to come to Him when we have sinned, acknowledging it and expressing our sorrow so that the relationship can continue to be open and joyful. He says, as we have forgiven our debtors, we're acknowledging to God that we have been forgiven a tremendous debt by Him that we could never repay. And in light of that, we have no justification for holding anything against another person. We have no justification for withholding forgiveness from another person. We must be forgiving people because we have been forgiven. There's no way around that. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this doesn't imply that without this prayer, God might actually entice us to do evil. God doesn't tempt us to sin. We're told in James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and, and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, the, the, the request here is for the Lord to keep us out of situations where we might be tempted to sin. The thing for us to see is the pursuit we are to have for true and lasting holiness in our life. Jesus doesn't want us riding the edge of what we might be able to get away with. Instead, he wants us to love God so much that we're asking him to keep us away from anything that would even have the potential of leading us to disobey him. And then in verse 14, Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is an elaboration on the part of the prayer that we find in verse 12, which says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus tells a story over in Matthew 18, verses 23 through 35, which further illustrates his teaching about forgiveness. Now, we don't have time to look at that story this morning. You can look at that later if you want, Matthew 18, 23 through 35. And when we get to Matthew chapter 18, we will definitely be looking at that story. But the point of that story and what we have here that we want to take away from this is not that forgiving others is a requirement for us to receive forgiveness, but that forgiveness is not a one-way street. God forgiving us obligates us to forgive others. Forgiveness received must be passed on to others. To ask for forgiveness and not also then extend forgiveness to others is a gross hypocrisy. We have been forgiven. We must, as a response, as a responsibility, also forgive because of it. Verse 16 through 18 
is the third example that Jesus gives, which is fasting. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This passage closely parallels the passages on giving to the poor in verses 2 through 4, and then also the first part of the passage on prayer in verses 5 through 8, doesn't it? I mean, it, they're, they're very similar to one another. The same principles are being taught again here. Fasting was a prominent element in Jewish religious life. There were various fasts throughout the year which were part of their religious observances. And in, in addition to those, the strict Pharisees, they fasted twice a week and made sure others knew it when they were fasting. When actively fasting, some they would cover their head and they would smear ash and dirt on their faces. So that you knew they're suffering for the Lord. I think it's interesting to note that two of the three things that Jesus calls out in these passages as examples of hypocrisy are things that were intended and are intended as personal acts of devotion. Prayer and fasting, they were, they're not intended to be some public display. They're, they're to be a personal act of devotion, aren't they? But people took them and they turned them into these public displays to show others how devoted they are, how good they are, how they are a cut above everyone else in their commitment to God. Human beings are capable of doing some amazingly good things. But when we see things like this, we are reminded of what a bit and twisted mess that we are too. In contrast to what these hypocrites were doing, Jesus tells his followers that when they fast, they should not let anyone know about it. They should look and act like they do on any other day. I'll make just a few quick remarks about fasting in our own day. Uh, intermittent fasting has become popular for some people to do as a health thing now. I don't, but maybe some of you do. I know it, it, it's a thing right now. Fasting is something uh, used as a form of protest by people who feel they have no control over anything else in their life. For example, political prisoners will refuse to eat as a form of protest. We've all seen these kind of stories in the news before. Technology fasts rather than food fasts are something that people do sometimes in our day as a way of breaking a habit that they feel they need to gain control over. They'll fast from using their phone or using social media or playing video games and similar types of things. 
Besides the various non-religious fasts that are done by people, followers of Jesus still practice fasting as part of their religious devotions, too. Fasting is not a requirement for a follower of Jesus to do. It's not commanded that uh, we do it. It's a personal choice a person would make. But fasting is done for a number of different reasons. Generally, Christians fast to sharpen their focus on the Lord, to clear their life of distractions, to assume a repentant position before the Lord, to devote more time to prayer, to seek the Lord in a particular intensive way about a particular thing, to put their focus on their spiritual life rather than their physical life. But when we fast, Jesus says, it's nobody's business but us and the Lord and to act and look like we would on any other day to those who are watching. When closing, uh, I want to bring us back around to the beginning. The verse that presents the main principle for us to take hold of today was Matthew 6.1, where Jesus said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. The person who is doing good and right things to gain admiration and praise from others has received all of the reward that they can expect to receive. Jesus encourages us to do good and right things when no one but God will know we've done them. And then he says, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Rather than living for the attention and accolades of others, rather than living for fame. Let's live for the attention and accolades of our Heavenly Father. Let's live our life for an audience of one, for the one. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your good words spoken to us today that remind us of what true devotion is really about and we thank you for the warnings that you give us today, too, about what false devotion is and the foolishness that we can chase. Lord, we, we pray that we would live our life for you. You are our audience. You are the one that we seek approval and accolade from, Lord. May you be pleased with our life, Father. Increase our devotion to you, our love for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.